wonderful joy to be with you again, especially at this time of the year. Uh, probably, not because of gifts, probably as we consider all of the so-called ecclesiastical liturgical calendar, this is the happiest season of all. Now, I know that Easter is a wonderful season, too, and I really do rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior, but maybe it's because of all of the wonderful memories that I have, even though when you consider the circumstances in which those memories were born, uh, you begin to wonder, but it is indeed a blessing for me to be with you again. I never expected, because usually... While we're down here from being up in Michigan, uh, Christmas time is where we have to be somewhere else. I'm glad we're here, by the way, with you wonderful people. But uh, it's usually one of those situations where there's no occasion for a guest speaker because the pastor has a program, and so it's a special blessing for us to be with you. And I want you to sort of make a, a pact, a, a covenant, Pray for your pastor, would you? Uh, I really believe in my own heart, in fact, I've experienced it any number of times, that God does hear our prayers. And God does answer our prayers. And all that you would have the experience of hearing that the medical profession and the hand of God is touching Pastor Sid. So keep praying for him, would you? But it is, to, it is great to be with you. Now, why do I feel that this season is so special? Well, most of you have an answer, and if you were to ask children that, they would tell you without any doubt why it's so wonderful. <clears throat> My first Christmas that I remember, <laughs> probably around uh, five, six years of age, just about uh, a year before the Second World War started. And uh, for the first time in my life, actually becoming conscious of people around me. You'll say, were you a slow learner? No, I wasn't a slow learner. But you know what I mean. Some, some of you will identify and interact with this. But anyway, we uh, lived in a, a small town in uh, the northern part of England, northeast part of England. But unfortunately, we lived in a center where they did a lot of shipbuilding. Some of the big ships, including battleships and destroyers and cruisers, were built on the River Tyne in the northeast part of England. Well, when the war started, and for England, the war started in the fall of 1939, a year before the United States got involved, and I'm sure thankful that you did. But that particular year when the war started uh, will never be erased from my memory anyway, uh, because I remember just uh, shortly after the war started, I remember uh, my grandmother, uh, who was uh, almost an invalid then, she could hardly walk, uh, crippled, uh, pushing all the children under the staircase. We, we lived in very um, circumstances which exemplified poverty. But I remember her pushing us under the staircase. And uh, I remember the sweet 
beautiful deer. I'm only five, six years of age now, maybe seven. Anyway, I remember this dear, sweet, wonderful, wonderful, gracious lady, very poor. But I remember her telling us and trying to comfort us and pushing us under the staircase and actually talking about Christmas. We had a month or two months to go yet. But I remember, I remember her, and I don't know why I'm sharing this with you, but here's this sweet, gracious lady who even then professed to be a believer. Uh, there was a little gospel hall close to where we lived where she would attend, and her husband had uh, died in an accident shortly before that, and I remember the hearing about him singing before he died on his deathbed, abide with me, fast falls the evening tide. Um, so that's an indication that they were in a right relationship with the Lord. But I remember this dear, dear, dear old lady um, going outside. Outside, the we lived on the second floor of this uh, house, and going outside, and the filthiest language you could possibly imagine coming out of her mouth as she waved her cane at these Nazi airplanes overhead, dropping bombs, you know. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I mean, we didn't, we were in poor circumstances, but if we ever had have said anything like that, soap would have been jammed into our mouth, you know, and we'll clean you up. But here's the sweet dear lady, and then coming back in just a little while later and saying, are you all right, sweetheart? <laughs> But what I do remember, even more than that, in fact, the bombs were already falling, and uh, that was my first experience with what's called a landmine, which comes down on a parachute, but does more damage than the regular bombs, because the biggest bombs, I think, at that time were 500 pounders. But this was a much bigger one coming down on a parachute, and I remember the, our house and everything shaking. But I, what I also remember... Now remember, I'm not giving you a sub-story. We were quite poor. But we all knew that we would get a gift. Somehow, my dad was away in the Marines uh, for the whole war on the King George V battleship. And I remember thinking about, oh, I'm going to get a gift. Every one of us, uh, three of us, and then another one was born during the war, um, we're all going to get a gift, a gift, a gift, one gift. And I remember thinking, oh, how wonderful that is. But you know, that was not the greatest gift, and that was not the greatest experience of my life, because I really didn't understand what Christmas was all about. I mean, I knew that you got gifts. And I knew it was connected with Jesus Christ, but I really didn't understand. And then just before I went into the military, I became a Christian. And for the first time, the first Christmas after I became a Christian, I understood what Christmas, the significance, the real meaning of Christmas. And oh, what a wonderful Christmas that was. And I take great delight 
as many of you do too, when I'm in a store or anyway and somebody says, Happy Holiday! I say, No, Merry Christmas. This is the birthday of the Lord Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas to you. So I'd like to share with you now, just to really re-impress upon your minds what the Bible has to say about Christmas. Now, there's no way I can exhaust this, because all the way through from the Old Testament, it's not just the New Testament. In fact, I can show you from prophecies that were made 700 years before Christ came, specifically telling that he would come. Not only that, specifically telling you exactly where he would be born. Did you ever stop and think about that, by the way? Herod said, well, where is this one going to be born? And if you remember the chapter and the verse, they didn't even have to go to their concordances to find out. They told him, in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. They knew their Bibles. But you know, they didn't get dressed and go to Bethlehem to make sure that they were there when he came. But they knew. So let me just share with you by asking you to open your Bibles. And I'm only going to actually single out one verse and concentrate on one verse. And that's in the passage we read. And it's found in chapter 2 of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And the verse is verse 11. And I'm going to ask you a question. So uh, remember, I think some of you know that I love to stretch your minds. Let's put that here so I don't knock it down and shock everybody. Yep, there we go. Uh, I love to stretch your minds. And I also, at the same time, I like to tan your hide. Because that's what the Word of God does. But you must exercise your mind. You must search the scriptures. And the more you exercise your mind, the better off you're going to be. Don't get stuck like, forgive me, whoever you are, these old people. (laughs) Who get stuck in front of the television and that's all their lives are. From morning until night. Exercise your mind. Do some serious reading especially in the Word of God. So look with me at chapter 2 of Luke, and I have a question to ask you. Now, the question is this, but I want you to think about it as I read this verse. I'm going to ask you this. What is the most important word in this verse? So you're thinking right now, you're concentrating right now. And we're in Luke chapter 2 in the verses, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, this is the theme of Christmas. This is the heart of Christmas. So I'm going to read it again. Don't answer the question, by the way. It's rhetorical. So think about it. What is the most important word here in verse 11? For unto you is born this day, 
in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, if you do take notes and you want to write things down, I'm asking seven questions. And this will lead you to the answer, I think. The first question is, who is this Savior? And the second question is, how did he come? And the third question is, where was he born? Next question, why was he born? To whom did he come? And what was the effect of his coming? So there are seven simple questions. And we're going to just skim over them. But this ought to open up to us without a shadow of a doubt what Christmas is all about. It's not about me wearing a red jacket. Uh, It's not because I'm British and the red coats are coming. It's got nothing, nothing to do with that. But I do wear it at Christmas time. It's the only time I really wear it. I used to wear it when, in 1976, when we had our bicentennial. I always wore a red jacket because I was out speaking all the time. Imagine this, an Englishman going out speaking to Kiwanis and speaking to all the social and clubs and various meetings and churches about the meaning of the American Revolution. And I always had great delight in that. And uh, I had more of an accent back then, too. And I was always introduced as the red coat who's coming. But it was a wonderful opportunity. And if I don't watch it, I'll digress again. But this is the greatest country on the face of the earth. I don't care what any of the television commentators say. And I'm basing this on the fact of experience also, not on knowledge. Um, The greatest historian who ever lived, in the estimation of most historians, was Lord Acton. You've all heard the expression, is power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's an expression from him. But he said, he has a two-volume work, it's a wonderful series, and this is on the history of liberty. And what he discovered was when the American Revolution back in July 4th, back in 1776, when that happened, for the first time in all of history, men understood the principles of liberty. Right there. Now, I know that most of us, generally speaking, are forgetting that. But let me tell you, if you lived in certain countries where we have lived, you'd begin to understand and you'd begin to thank God for the United States. And we have to have eternal vigilance because, unfortunately, we think better. Many human minds think better. And we're still trying to reproduce. I'm getting on a political note now. (laughs) Many men think better and they think, no, we can introduce a better system. No, you already have it. All you've got to do is stick with it and keep it. So the first question I'm going to ask is, who is this Savior? Now, did you come up with the same word I did? The word I came up with is Savior. 
And the moment that you say Savior, you imply something. You imply salvation from something. It's here in this verse too. Who is this Savior? Wow, are you ready to stretch your mind just a little bit? No, we don't have to turn there because I want to finish all seven questions. But if you start thinking about it, that God was in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. God who created the world, all the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is that God. He was the Word. The Word was with God. And God was the Word. I don't understand that. That's impossible. That's what the Bible teaches. In more than one verse. I don't understand it either, quite frankly. I cannot even begin to conceive it. But I believe it. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that there cannot possibly be any salvation. If that's not true. Because you can't stick a man on the cross and say, he's dying for the sins of the whole world. Who was this Savior? And all the answers. Well, he was Christ Jesus. Jesus means Savior. Christ means the anointed one. We tend to think, well, who was Jesus? Well, he was the Christ. And we somehow or other think, well, that's his surname. You know, Jesus Christ. No. If you look at all of the prophecies going back into the Old Testament, even going back to those in Isaiah, 700 years before he was born, Thou shalt call his name, goes all the way back there. And he is what? Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and be with child. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't conceive it, but I believe it. There is no other answer to it. Who is he? Well, he is the Christ. The anointed one, the one that all the scriptures talked about. And remember the two on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24? The Lord Jesus Christ, who had come up alongside of them, and some kind of a miracle, a supernatural miracle is taking place because they, don't under, they, they can't identify him at that point. But then he turns to them and he says, well, what happened in Jerusalem? And they start to tell him, we had hoped that it would be he, the one, the Messiah, who would redeem the world. And that hope there, by the way, is, oh, we dis- we're disappointed. And you know what the Lord said? The Lord said, oh, you fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. Amen. Now, don't Take, don't be too hard on the Lord, because what he's saying is, how can you be so slow at the uptake? It's clearly recorded in the Old Testament. Not only there, but in uh, Zechariah, uh, in a number of passages, it's clearly there. Especially in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Because it tells you that he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, you can stand back and you can be rational about it and say, well, as some do, by the way, some have actually, some brilliant minds have said, well, 
He just maneuvered and manipulated everything. So it worked out that he fulfilled all those prophecies. Did you have anything to do with the place you were born? All I know, I was born. I was there. I really was there. But I had nothing to do with that. I mean, I remember the house. Well, it's not there anymore. But anyway, I remember where that house stood. How on earth could anybody ever manipulate the facts and figures of the place where he was going to be born? I mean, the, the, what you take more faith to be an atheist with rationalistic presuppositions than you do if you believe what the Bible says. At least as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's the way I, I would look at it. But this is the season of the year also when we talk about Christ. Christ Mass. And we automatically, whether we know it or not, are joining together the birth with the death of Christ. The crib is there, but the cross is also there. And you can get that also in Isaiah 53. The fact he wasn't esteemed very highly by people. Well, you get that in John's Gospel. I could go on and on and on and on, all the way through the Old Testament and to the New Testament to show you this. So he was Christ. Why did I write down here on this piece of paper, Normandy? That's a good question. Oh, I know why. I remember now. One of the saddest experiences of my entire life was taking a group of people back to Normandy, to the beaches of Normandy. We used to take uh, groups back to Europe. But on this one occasion, my regiment had arranged a tour, and we went back there. And some of the men on the bus were there on the landing, the first days of the landing and so forth. And the moment we got there, here are men, and I mean men, tough men, with tears streaming down their cheeks. And this, were, this whole world is full of this kind of violence, and it continues even to this day. But there's still a Savior. And what a wonderful message as we looked at all those hundreds and hundreds of grave, graves with all the crosses, with all these soldiers buried there. And I got to thinking, one of these days those graves are going to open up and we're going to see Jesus Christ again. And we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. What a wonderful experience that is. Who was he? He was the promised one. He was the Messiah. How did he come? Those of you with any kind of a medical background are going to say, this is impossible. Because no man entered into this picture. There was indeed a virgin birth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and be with a child. Out of the Holy Spirit. This is the God-man being born as a baby. I cannot conceive it. In the manger? This is what the Bible teaches, and I tell you, if you deny this and go contrary to this, what solution is there? 
It does take more faith to be an outright atheist than it does to be a believer. And you could push that, and we could talk about that for a long, long time. Where was he born? Well, as I mentioned, Scripture tells us very, very clearly he was born in Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah had said. Now, what is amazing to me here is, and I think I mentioned this in introductory remarks, what is really, truly amazing, Herod wanted to know where he would be born. And they knew their Bibles. Well, the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, those connected with the temple, really did study their Bibles. Did you ever hear the story of the lady who called her pastor and said, um, I've got a terrible problem, and oh, I, I must talk to you. You must come over and see me. I, I need help. And so the pastor goes over, and the pastor says, uh, they talk together for a little while, and she says, he says, well, I, before we begin, I'd like to read some scripture to you. And she says, oh, well, read it out of my Bible. And the pastor said, okay. And she says, now where did I put my Bible? Oh, I know where it is. She went to the cupboard, pulled out the Bible, which was her Bible. Out of the Bible fell her glasses. And she said, oh, there they are. I've been looking for them for five years. Little wonder she had problems. She never spent any time in the Word of God, at least over those five years, or very, very little time. When was he born? Now, this is an interesting question, by the way. Because some of you who study your Bibles will say, well, how could he be born in 6 B.C.? You know, there are dates at the top of the margins here. That's impossible. Well, calendars are a very funny business. Because they were acting under the Julian calendar... And uh, with Gregory the 13th, we have the Gregorian calendar, which radically changed. And then when you get to the 18th century, I'd hate to be George Washington, for example. George Washington lost his birthday because they readjusted the calendar 14 days. The calendars are not exact. I mean, they're exact right now within a few minutes every year, which I think is amazing anyway. But when was he born? We really don't know the exact date, but we do know he was born. You couldn't have any more evidence than the fact that he was born. And the reality is that's what counts. He was born, whether it's 4 B.C. or even 6 B.C. In the fullness of time. Now, you weigh that one carefully. Shirley just sent out a, I think she got more responses on this Shirley sends out a soliloquy every week, and you can get one. You can be on the mailing list if you have a computer, if you'd like to just give her. And she gets so many responses, but this last one, why did she ever get the responses? And it was all based on the concept that in the fullness of time, at the exact moment in God's de determinate will, Jesus was born. And when you think about it as a historian, there was no more propitious moment in all of history for Jesus to be born. 
Because Alexander the Great, for example, had spread his empire all over. And more than that, he had introduced an international language, a language of merchandising, the Koine Greek. You could get by all over the world by speaking this Koine Greek. And more than that, actually, the, the condition of the world. And other historians have pointed these facts out over and over again. Well, she put it out all out simply because uh, we just had a, a, a wonderful experience. Our daughter uh, went to the doctor. Um, uh, you can re- refresh my mind, but on a Monday, Friday she went to the doctor and he said, oh, You've got to go over to the emergency. The emergency said, you can't go home. You've got to stay in the hospital. But she went home anyway. And okay. Get it right. I was involved with it, but my dear wife was really deeply involved. But she had 90% blockage in a carotid artery. And uh, she'd had an experience driving. Think of this, by the way. When for a few minutes she was blind driving her car, and she somehow or other pulled over to the side and sat there for a long time until her eyesight came back. But that's the artery that takes the blood to the brain, you know, and you can't live and you can't function, uh, and you're, you're, deter- you're predestined for a stroke for sure on that. Well, anyway, she went to the uh, emergency. They kept her in. The next day there was the operation, and Wednesday she was released to go home. So Shirley wrote her soliloquy on that, showing that just at the right time things worked on. God had his hand on everything. But when it comes to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul actually says this. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, which is a a fantastic... So the wind is under the control of God. Why did God send his son? You can't miss this. In fact... When Joshua was reading scripture a little while ago, it states it very explicitly. He died in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And there are countless verses which teach this. So you cannot separate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross of Christ. He he was born to die. In fact, when John the Baptist saw him for the first time, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. His birth is related to the cross. The cross is related to what he did for us in paying the penalty for our sins. And if you don't know the theological basis of any of that, you see, God loves us. Loves us in a way that you can't possibly even begin to measure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What an emotion. You can't measure it. But when you start reading about it, you discover that God loves us in spite of the fact that we deserve to be punished for our sin. I'm putting it in plain, simple language. God extended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You cannot begin to measure that truth. But nevertheless, when you come to the question of why, Scripture is very, very, very clear. 
In fact, I, I should take the time to look at all these references I have in front of me. Now we come to another question. Oh, my, look at that clock. Um, I must be getting old. When you come, actually, when you come back to Scripture, you run into a little bit of a problem. Not in this church, maybe, so much. Not in the historical background of this church. Because I have to ask you, to whom did he come? He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you're going to say, well, that's not fair. But that was what the scriptures had predicted, that he would come to his own. And he came in order to fulfill the promises which were made unto the fathers. But something great has happened. And we talked about this a little bit in the Sunday school class. The door of faith was thrown wide open to all the Gentiles. What a wonderful truth this is. Man alive, I cannot even begin to imagine. No wonder the Jews got angry. and No wonder they wanted to uh, put the conspired together to kill Paul. Because Paul said, my apostleship is to the Gentiles. And most of you here, if not all of you, happen to be Gentiles. What a wonderful truth. To whom was he sent? He was sent to the whole world. But there was the progressive revelation concerning Israel. And guess what, by the way? If you read Romans 11, what do you read about Israel? You try and figure that one out. In spite of all their history. In fact, read the Old Testament. You just keep shaking your head. Why did they keep rebelling? Why did they keep rebelling? That's a good question. Why do most American people rebel from this truth? Well, because the most difficult thing you'll ever have to do was for me. And I thought it was a big joke when this nurse said to me, you're a sinner. She didn't know what I was thinking, but I said, oh, she only knew. (laughs) I mean, I was a sinner. I knew it. But do you think I was going to admit it? Not to anybody. I'm just as good as the guy next door kind of thing all the time. But this is the most difficult thing you'll ever have to face up to. You're not perfect. Not one of you. Some of you are better than others, by the way. Oh, I hate to say that. Not Not you? Okay. I I thought, Andrew, you were going to say, well, I'm a little better. And you are, by the way, than a lot of people. But you haven't quite made it. Because not one of you, not one anywhere except the Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. And the basic truth here is if God is holy and he is and if he is righteous and he is, then he must, absolutely must punish sin. So this is where the death of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in as our savior, as our substitute dying in our place on the cross. And this also is intimately, inextricably tied together with Christmas, that he died on the cross for our sins. And what is the effect? Well, I just mentioned very briefly in my case, I tell you that first Christmas that I experienced, I've never known, I'd never known in any part of my life 
such joy and such peace. And what was the message to the shepherds? Joy and peace. And what did they do? They went right away to tell what had happened. And the Savior had come. This joy can be yours. And this peace. Just imagine. Can you imagine? Having the confident experience of knowing that you're going to be with Christ and you're going to reign with him? Can you possibly begin to imagine that? You say, well, how can you be so? Because God tells you that's what it is. And the biblical use of the word hope is not the way we use the word hope. The biblical use of the word hope is a confident, experiential anticipation. Why? Because God cannot lie. He grants unto you eternal life. And John 3.16 comes into it again, and John 3.17 comes into it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you, that's me, believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, I was preaching recently, and uh, there happened to be in the audience a, uh, an Italian young man, a student over at Malone College. And for some reason, uh, I know a little bit about his back, background, but I said, just think of what that verse of Scripture says. And I says, just came right out. It wasn't planned. I said, Poiché. That little guy sitting there looked, because he was Italian, he held his book, uh, English kind of thing, you know. But what a wonderful truth that is. God so loved, and he gave, in spite of the fact that we were sinners. What a wonderful truth. Now, even that doctrine, by the way, goes back into the Old Testament. The Day of the Atonement. The fact that the Day of Atonement involved the high priest going right in before the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled to make atonement. Jesus is the mercy seat. The New Testament says that. That's where God meets the sinner at the cross. That's the only place that you can come into a relationship with God through the cross. All that you would do that. I'm going to read something here that struck me just a little bit. Uh, Billy Graham had a chance, oh, this is maybe 40 years ago, to meet with Doug Hammarskjöld, uh, who was then at that particular time the director of the United Nations And uh, Dr. Graham was talking about the conditions of the world. And Dag Hammarskjöld said this, I see no hope for permanent world peace. Now this is the guy that's head of the United Nations at that time. We have tried so hard. He was a believer, by the way. We have tried so hard and we have failed so miserably Then, the author says, there was a pause for a long time. And then he said, now listen to these words, unless the world 
has a spiritual rebirth within the next few years, civilization is doomed. That's the need. The need is for this spiritual rebirth. And I just finished reading that book on the blood shall cry out that history of the persecution of the last uh, couple of dozen years. You cannot believe how believers have suffered. I mean, the violence in our crazy world, even in our own country, the violence is just, it, it boggles my mind because we have so much and we ought to be grateful to God for what we do have. And some people are going to do better somehow or other, and they're going to do it by violence. Something is radically wrong, and what is wrong is the sin nature, the rebellion against God, and yet God still loves us. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. He loves you, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sinful life has been. And God is willing to forgive. All you need to do is just simply say, thank you, God, for sending your son, talk about Christmas, for sending your son in order to die on the cross for my sins. And you are, or he is, my Messiah, Jesus. Shall we pray together? Our loving God and our Heavenly Father, we have tried... To what degree successfully, we have no idea, but we've tried, our God and Father, to somehow or other bring our minds back to the real meaning of Christmas, and we're grateful, and we're grateful for the gift that passes all gifts, and thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, the gift of love, the gift of his Son, who went all the way to the cross and died in our place. Oh, our God and our Father, may the Holy Spirit speak to us in such a way that we cannot escape the dynamic of this love. And oh, our God and our Father, may we respond in faith positively by saying thank you for Jesus dying for me in my place. And we'll be sure to give thee all the praise and we'll enjoy Christmas as we've never enjoyed Christmas ever in the past. And we ask these things in the precious name of the one who made it all possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.